0: I can't believe it, but we are here after 28 weeks. We have made it to the last sermon, the final sermon da-da, in the Revelation series. Uh, I don't know how many of you have stuck with us through the entire series. How many of you have joined kind of halfway, or how many of you maybe this is the first interaction you're having with us as we walk through Revelation? But if you have been with us for the for the whole time since since last fall, uh, you deserve some sort of graduation certificate or something. Uh, I am very excited to be bringing this series. to to an end. We've walked through a lot of symbols and images and colors and numbers, uh, a lot of talk of the the politics of the day surrounding the letter in the first century, Uh, and we've done our best to soberly remember the worldview of those um, who, who first read this letter, the situation that the Apostle John found himself in while he wrote this letter, and the message that Jesus was trying to portray through this apocalypse. Now remember, The word apocalypse, it's not a scary word. It just means unveiling. And what's being unveiled in the book we call Revelations is is Jesus himself and the larger story of the church. It's the larger story of history, really, the larger story of who actually holds true eternal power and who therefore deserves eternal and full worship and authority over our lives. Uh, we see the saints cry out at the beginning of, God, will you, will you bring satisfaction? Will you bring fulfillment to all of the promises you've given us throughout history? We've seen as a result of sin that the, the downward spiral and the endpoint of evil is death. Uh, a fulfillment of a desire to be separated with God is really what happens. And today we get to see what happens in the final two chapters of this fantastic uh, apocalyptic poem, the ultimate conclusion of the story of history, displayed again through through beautiful imagery and symbols and colors. So grab your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, and we're, we're going to look through both chapters 21 and 22. But we're going to start with just the first five verses of chapter 21 for now. And if you'd like to look at, at our notes, you can go to cachurch.info and follow along there as well. Revelation 21. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Well, we saw in the last few chapters that the way of the Lamb and the way of those who follow the Lamb, Jesus, has been proven true and eternal. And alternatively, that the way of the beast and those who follow it has come to an end. The promises of the world, the, the power and the prestige and the pursuit of, of passion has, has come they, they've come to their end. Satan and his power, his threats, his promises of of degrading pleasure are done. Now we have everything being made new. We see echoes in the the beginning of Revelation chapter 21, but also throughout these these two chapters completely, Uh, most likely of Isaiah chapter 43 and, and 65. Isaiah 43, verses 18 and 19 says this, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Very similar to what we're reading in chapter 21 of Revelation. In, in Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 19, it says, for, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in the, in, in the sound of weeping and the cry of distress so these, these were promises that God made to the Jewish nation in the Old Testament that he would remove, um, remove them from exile to Babylon. But here in Revelation 21, they're applied on a much larger level, a cosmic level. This is a promise that the evil powers of the world played out in politics in ideologies that, as we've seen, Revelation often refers to them as Babylon, symbolically, that, that they try to push back on the gospel of Jesus' kingship well, here we see they will be conquered and life will flourish in the wake of their destruction. So one day, all those things that, that attempted to put an end to the lamb and, and damage the lamb's relationship with his people, it'll be done with. And what do we find in their absence, in in their, in their the passing, their destruction? Well, the symbolism here is of a wedding. All of scripture has been aiming towards this cosmic Wedding Verses two and three says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Well, for those of you who've been married, you know all the planning and the setup for a wedding, wedding ceremony, and and and, and, the, the 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 planning for a wedding but more so the planning for a marriage and there have been horror stories of, of things getting in the way of a wedding canceled venues family issues disagreements on where and when and then in the last year and a half covid throwing a big curveball how it should look sometimes there are jealous exes who show up a week before sometimes there's cancellations and cold feet and and temptation drawing one away from commitment Sometimes there's a drunk uncle that shows up just as the bride is about to walk down the aisle. I have a few things. Well, that's that's what Revelation is is all about. Babylon, the world, representing the world, trying to ruin a wedding, doing all in its power to ruin the romance between Jesus and his creation, between Jesus ultimately and his church, his saints. All of scripture, all of, of history is aiming towards this beautiful cosmic wedding that we see in chapters 21 and 22 and the evil in the world trying to stop the wedding from happening and draw the bride away from her first love. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus often compares his kingdom to a wedding. Matthew 9:14, he calls himself a groom. In Matthew 25, verses one to three, he talks about being ready for this coming wedding. In Matthew 22, verses one to 10, there's this invitation for all who are willing to come and celebrate at the wedding feast. In 22, verses 11 to 14, he talks about wearing the white kind of robes for a for a wedding. Well, each of these are meant to talk about us waiting patiently for this cosmic wedding that's taking place in Revelations 21 and 22. Now, typical of Revelation is that many of the images, kind of like a wacky dream we might have, they move from one form to another. In chapter 21, the bride is also a city, a community. Followers of the Lamb represented as a new Jerusalem, this new community presented. Well, this reality, this joining together of God's full reign with his people, is called the New Jerusalem. And, and there are a handful of things that we're going to look at that we notice about this New Jerusalem when we see it described. So, what do we find? Well, first thing, we find that this New Jerusalem comes to us, it approaches us. We don't have to work to attain New Jerusalem. New, New Jerusalem comes to us, it says in verse 2. See, Christianity is not actually about escaping creation, it's about being part of its redemption. It's about being here to witness the best chapter of its history. In fact, the hope of Revelation is not about rapture or going to heaven, but ultimately about what Barbara Rossing calls a rapture in reverse. It's the descent of God to us, again. New Jerusalem is also a place of beauty. It says in verse 11, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a a jasper, clear as crystal. In verses 19 to 21, Of chapter 21. It says, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopras, the eleventh jacinth, and twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. If I got any of those jewels wrong, send me an email. I'm, many of them I've never s- said out loud before. <laughs> now, have you ever grasped when, or gasped when a, a bride enters and walks down the aisle? I, I had the, the honor of performing a wedding just this last Saturday, and that's my favorite part. Asking everyone to rise, and all the guests in their hearts and minds are, say, are, are excited about what's about to come next. In their minds are saying, come, come bride. And, and everyone stands and, and turns with anticipation for the long-awaited event. Well, that's what's happening here in Revelations 21 and 22. Now, if you have a hard time imagining what John's just described, picturing this jewel-laden city, that's good. That's the point. The point is the indescribable beauty of our new reality, the bride. But, But these jewels don't just show us beauty. They are also a display of God's sovereignty, that he is the beginning and the end, and that what he began, he will finish. What I mean by is this, that some of you might know that in the ancient, uh, the high priest of Israel used to wear a breastplate that had 12 jewels on it that represented the 12 tribes of Jerusalem, the people of God. Well, here we have 12 jewels as the foundations of the city, but with the names of the 12 apostles on them, it says in verse 14. The 12 apostles being the foundation of the church. We we see a, a mixing together of what God had done through his people in the Old Testament and the work of the apostles and his church in the new. But there's no longer a need for a high priest, no longer a mediator between God and man that's been taken care of by Jesus at the cross, bringing all of humanity into one family. So what we're seeing here is that the story of God's history of redemption is not separated. It's an ongoing story that's coming to completion here. When we look at this new created order, we also see perfection and power in verses 15 to 17. It says this, And the one who spoke with me, had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as the width. And he measured the city with the rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Theologian Michael Gorman notes that the measurements we see in verses 15 to 17 would would leave a footprint about the size of the entire Roman Empire in John's day. It was an all-encompassing city. In the ancient world, a square city was considered the perfect shape for a city. But here, New Jerusalem one-ups any other city in that it also has an equal height to make it a cube, again, which is symbolic but showing the power, an inability to be moved, a city that cannot be conquered or overtaken. You can't climb the walls and get in if you're not invited. And as we move into chapter 22, we we see that this city brings fulfillment. It brings our history and scripture uh, to a conclusion. Humanity started in a garden in Eden, and it's brought back to a city that is also a garden. Humanity was divided by rebellion at a tree. Now they are freely given the eternal fruits of a sustaining tree we see that there's true flourishing in New Jerusalem. Verses 1 to 5 of 22. See, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. It never wilted, never went away. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. They will be dedicated to him, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Scholar N.T. Wright points that what we see here is the final answer to the Lord's prayer, Thy kingdom come. And I wonder if it looks different than what many of us might think. I mean, whatever n- new heaven and new earth means, it does not mean a complete throwing out of the baby with the bathwater. But it means a cleaning up of, of all that keeps humanity and creation from life, uh, getting, getting rid of it. So notice that rather than an elimination of culture, it's, it is the, the full and proper expression of w- some of the culture that we have. In verse 24, it says, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So kings and nations don't just disappear. They they bring into the new city an expression of their nations in worship. Guys, God is not anti-culture. He's not anti-city. New Jerusalem brings the, the community and flourishing that mankind has attempted throughout the centuries but continued to fail at. As Richard Baucom puts it, in the beginning, God had planted a garden for humanity to live in, in Genesis 2.8. In the end, he will give them a city. In the new Jerusalem, the blessings of paradise will be restored. But the new Jerusalem is more than paradise regained. As a city, it fulfills humanity's desire to build out of a nature, a human place of human culture and community. So kings and nations and cultures will, will enter and, and make up what we've only been playing at and sadly often gotten wrong in, in church. A, a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multilingual, global community worshiping the Lamb. This this is the image of the the beautiful, thriving kingdom of God in its fullest expression. What a beautiful image that John takes in and, and does his best to describe using like and as throughout, because it's difficult. But what's also extremely telling about New Jerusalem is what's missing, what we do not find in New Jerusalem. First, we notice that there's no sea. The the sea in in ancient days, especially to the Jews, represented chaos. The sea was deep, it was dark, it was chaotic, it was hard to control, it was the opposite of the peace and shalom and order that God brings. That's gone. Also, there's no suffering in verse four. It says there's no more sin and death and mourning. Their, their, Their time is gone. The New Jerusalem flies in the face of every attempt at godless culture that causes anxiety and fear in us. It is God's alternative to Rome in John's day and an alternative to any other incarnation of Babylon that has emerged throughout history or will emerge in the future. This New Jerusalem delivers what no other civilization or power or ideology ever could, full relief, full release from burden and sin. It's not by accident that this text is often a comfort at funerals and memorials. Under the Lamb's reign, under his rule, it says in verse 4 of 21, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Guys, those are the markers of the old old creation, the old way. They have no place in New Jerusalem. We also see that there's no more opposition to flourishing. Verses 8 of chapter 21 and verse 15 of 22. Verse 8, it says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Chapter 22, verse 15 says, Outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the socially immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So this is the removal of all that prevents human flourishing in community before God and the presence of all that permits and promotes that flourishing. In other words, all the powers that tried to keep this cosmic marriage from happening, all the powers and and those who follow them represented throughout Revelation as the whore of Babylon, the dragon, the two beasts, those antichrists, they are removed from the city so that the wedding can go on unhindered. There's also no temple in the city chapter 21, verse 22, says there's no temple. I mean, that sounds negative. Why no place to worship God? Well, because the Garden City is the temple. As we've already seen, the city is a, is a perfect cube. Well, some of you might remember the Holy of Holies in the ancient temple, the very place where God, Yahweh, met the high priest was a perfect cube. In 1 Kings 6 to 20, says the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. And it was overlaid with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar, it says there. And that makes sense that it's a perfect cube and that New Jerusalem is a perfect cube. If if there's anything New Jerusalem is meant to represent, it's the unhindered full presence of God with his creation. New Jerusalem is the unhindered full presence of God. Remember, we are a nation of priests, it says in Revelations 1.6. It says, and he made us a kingdom, priests, to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever amen in first peter 2:9 Peter says you're speaking to the church says you're a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light we see this fulfilled here in revelation 21 and 22. And so the, the city of light, of the unveiled presence of God, is what we were made for. The this, this city is the, the unhindered presence of God. And I kind of hinted at it, but also what's missing in New Jerusalem is the sun. In verse 23, it says there's no sun. There's no need for it because the poor sun would pale in comparison to the Lamb. It would serve no purpose because the Lamb illuminates all of creation. I mean, how do you outlight the source of light? He's the light of the world. So there's no need for the sun in New Jerusalem. But ultimately, there's no curse, it says in verse 3 of 22. The ongoing burden of man since he chose to reject God's kingship but attempted to live in his kingdom. The pain and anxiety-inducing dark blanket of sin pushing up against and down on humanity, it's no more. No more drawing humanity to worship worthless things that lead to death. 22 verse 3 says, No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Nothing will be in the way of God's kingdom being fully displayed anymore. But what is great and what is happening at the end of this image is beautiful. Well, first, John messes up again, and he kind of tries to worship an angel. He just doesn't know what to do. He's so excited. He did that earlier in chapter 19, and the angel says the same thing. He basically looks at him in 22 verse 9 and says, don't don't do that. (laughs) I'm just a messenger. I'm just an angel. But it's as if at this point in the story, as we, as we end verse 20, chapter 22, that the church, Jesus, the, the, the husband, the lamb, the bridal party, all of creation turn to all who are watching and they look at us and they say, isn't this beautiful? Do you want to get in on this? And they turn and they say to everyone, you're invited to this marriage. You're invited to the eternal, this eternal bond. All are welcome. So come, come and drink from the fountain of living water. Verse 17 of 22 says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let, let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It's been purchased for you. This is what all the, the healings of Jesus during his earthly ministry were pointing to. All the, all the casting out of demons and the gospels, all the, the removal of pain, the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, his own resurrection, put, put Satan, put the beast, put the world, put you and I on notice. Christ is the true king. This is why the Gospel of John refers to all of Jesus' miracles as signs. They're they're pointing to this. And, And the resurrection was to remind you and I that no one else tells Jesus what to do. If he says he's going to do it, he will do it. No one else can make the claim, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, but the resurrected Lamb. No one else can rightfully unravel the chapters of history, open the seals, as we saw early in Revelation. No one else has and uh, no one else was and is and is to come. No one else has the power of his words to proclaim, I am making all things new. Amen. Praise God for this message to the church today. So how do we respond? How do we respond to today's message and the message of this entire book to the, the impending coming of God to man? Because like all scripture, it does demand a response. And I think for us today, there are four things that we are compelled to do to respond to this vision of New Jerusalem. First is we respond in worship. We respond by giving our devotion and worship to Jesus who was and is and is to come. And, and not taking the worship of materialism or relationships or power or sexuality lightly. Revelation is a, is a warning that they lead, they lead us away from true life towards death. Revelation is an invitation not, in the, not just in the future, but right now to declare with the saints, worthy are you, our Lord and God, as it says in 4.11. To receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So it's a call to worship. I think Revelation is also a call to live an embodied allegiance to Jesus, to live it out now, to live out now the reality of this unveiling of Revelation, to live out the truth of the lamb on the throne and the defeat of evil, to align our lives, our decisions, what we do with our minds, our bodies, with the truth of this apocalyptic vision. It's what we were created for. I also think we're, we're called to be humble prophets in light of Revelation. In light of this unveiling, we need to be willing to speak the truth in love against practices that are at odds with this coming reality. That follow the trajectory of the dragon and live in fear of the lies of the dragon, whether they occur among God's people or in the wider world. And lastly, ultimately, the final call of Revelation is to have a properly placed Hope. a properly placed hope. This new creation is not achieved by human effort or political campaigns. See, the church has never truly grown through government mandate or or government's favor. It has grown when God's people are hopeful even in difficulty. That's when the outside world looks and is excited. When God's people offer an an alternative to fear and anxiety caused by all the, the whispered threats of the devil and lifeless ideologies and all their different manifestations. Throughout the book of Acts and the history of the church, it's been the uncrushable hope in prisons singing hymns while being persecuted and seeing the glory of God under political and societal pressure that was a powerful voice and a message to the world that made cultures and societies take notice. It was hope and a desire to place in the community of the Lamb. They wanted to get in because of the hope they saw. Revelation calls us to hope. Well, for John, who wrote this revelation down for the first century church, under pressure from the government to give up or give in, and ever since, for all of those whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life, the book of Revelation, is a reminder that things are much bigger than they seem. Be encouraged, church. The Lamb is on the throne, and he is coming. He who testifies to these things says, surely, I am coming soon. And the church says, amen, come Lord Jesus, come. Jesus, thank you so much for this apocalyptic vision that you gave to John to encourage him at the end of the first century imprisoned for proclaiming that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you for this encouragement you gave to the first century church under Roman persecution, feeling as though they were in exile, awaiting your return. And God, I thank you for these these encouraging words you give to your church today in 2021. You give us reason to worship you. You give us reason to have hope even in the midst of difficult times. And God, as we think of our situation here in the Tri-Cities, in BC, in Canada, we think of our, our partners around the world doing missions work who are going through difficult times, not only because of the pandemic, because they are boldly proclaiming that you are King of Kings and Lord of Lords in areas that do not want to hear it. God, I thank you for the encouragement that this letter is. We look forward to this this beautiful day when you will descend and make your kingdom complete here among us. God, I pray this would animate us, that we would have an animated allegiance to this truth today and until you return. We pray these things in the all-powerful name of Jesus who was and is and is to come. Amen. Church, I love you, and I miss you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you, and may he give you his eternal peace until he comes again. God bless you.